Today's readings from the New Testament come from Mark 6 and Luke 19. Mark 6, 32 through 34. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Luke nineteen forty one through 44. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you, and surround you, and hem you in on every side, and tear you down to the ground you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, would you pray with me? Father, we want to thank you for the way you've been reaching out to us and making yourself known this entire service. Through the testimonies, through the singing, through the person next to us, through your gathering us now before the words that you've spoken. And so make yourself known You know that we are a needy bunch. We are in a position to be saved. And so we pray that you would bring salvation to us in Christ's name. Amen. In our day, the statement, God is personal, is usually translated this way. Whatever or whoever God is, it's up to the individual. That's typically what we mean by that statement. Now, in the Christian faith, the statement God is personal means that God is a person in his own right. He's capital P person. In fact, everything that's good and beautiful about personhood or humanity finds his source in him, God in three persons. More so, we can know him as a person, and that's when your relationship to God really takes off. When he moves from being a force to being a friend. When he moves from being a director or a creator to being a father and a lover. This is the potential the Christian faith offers people. Because God, again, is a person. And he demonstrates this in that he became one of us. He was made like us. In the person of Jesus Christ. And we spent the first week talking about, as much as we could in a short time, 
who this God-man is. And again, the early church doesn't try to explain some of the things that make us go, I don't understand how that fits together. You've heard me say before that uh, modern folk tend to believe if I can't get my head around something, it's not true. But that's not true. And so we're told, one, that he's fully divine. That's the testimony of the Bible. But Jesus himself said, whoever sees me has seen the Father, who has seen God. Which means that Jesus, Jesus acts as God and for God in every way. And for you to encounter Jesus is to encounter God. But at the same time, he is fully human. And that means that as Jesus acts as a person, we see laid before us what humanity was to be. Who you and I were to be. And it's been since the beginning that the church had this understanding. Now it had to wrestle and tussle with things. But I I just have to say this idea that we're presented all the time. That, you know, the church was really fuzzy and over time it just kind of evolved that they understood. And then they kind of made Jesus into God. It historically doesn't stand. One of the early creeds from Chalcedon said... Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man, of a rational soul and a body. One essence with the Father as regards his divinity, and one essence with us as regards his humanity. Like us in all respects, except sin. In the first week, I said my observation is, In the world, Jesus is typically seen only through the lens of humanity. But in the church, he's seen primarily through the lens of divinity. Now, I'm not saying that the church or we or you don't believe that Jesus wasn't fully human. But usually our reflection goes as far as, yeah, he became human because he needed to die for sinners. Praise God for that. And he had to be that mediator between God and man, the God man. Right. But I, I want to propose to you that there is a wealth of support and a wealth of wisdom locked away in the humanity of Jesus Christ for you and I. And so over the next couple of weeks, we want to be able to try to unlock some of it. Looking at topics like, what does it mean that Jesus grew and developed? What does it mean that he struggled with temptation? And what does it mean that he felt the feelings of God? That he felt the feelings of God. That statement, I think, is even a strange thing to hear today. Because we've been so conditioned to believe that God is so distant and an energy of force, he doesn't have any feelings. Or perhaps we've misunderstood some of the teaching even in this tradition, a Reformed tradition, the Westminster Confession of Faith, one of the key documents of the Presbyterian Church, makes the statement that God is without passions. And that has led people to say, well, that means he's without feelings. But really, it's better interpreted that God's feelings aren't given to hot and cold like you and me. And they're not given to sinful extremes like you and me. But that God has feelings. How do we know that? Well, in part because you have feelings. 
And the idea that you have feelings and God doesn't have feelings doesn't make sense. But more so we find the testimony of the Bible over and over communicating to us God's feelings. You know, I was thinking about how easy it is for us to forget this. And it occurred to me one day, I was making this trek. I was meeting the elders in uh, the diaconate for a dinner. It was before Christmas. And I was going from Capitol Hill to Northwest on Mass Ave during rush hour. You know what I mean, right? And it occurred to me as I was sort of in my stupor um, that the feelings of the drivers were so perceptible through the cars themselves. You know, in fact, I thought if you could have the feeling labeled on the back of the car, you know, you have the one person that's like, even though we're really not moving, goes from lane to lane to lane to lane to lane, right? What do you have there? Frustrated, you know, impatient. Or even the other person that always needs budged along because they're, you know, looking at the text thing. You know, bored. Or maybe just resigned, right? Just giving in. And it really occurred to me, I came to, um, I think it's Thompson Circle. Is that the circle on Massachusetts Avenue? What's that? Thomas, thank you. I've only lived here for 16 years, so you have to... <laughs> Forgive me for that. Anyway, so I come up to, you know, we come up to that circle. And as you know, you got two lanes going into the circle, which is always, you know, I can never remember what lane to get in. But two lanes going into the circle. But then there's this little side street. And uh, we're stopped there. And this car is trying to come through the side street across the two lanes and then into the other two lanes as they're flying along. And... um, you know, I, I let him in because I'm such a fine Christian. Uh, no, actually, I couldn't move forward. So I was like, all right, come on in. And just to see this person's face, you know, they're kind of, you know, inching forward, inching forward, trying to, you know, get. And they're just kind of getting across. And all of a sudden, I see their eyes go like this. And I look in the rearview mirror. And there's this car plainly sees them, just keeps coming, coming, coming. And then stops right there. And the driver in this car goes, and the other one just goes. Fear, vengeance, right? Uh, You know, these feelings all around us. And we can one hand be, maybe we're in the age that is so preoccupied with feelings, but in many ways we can be so blind to our feelings. And I think it gets especially weird when you come into the church in the Christian faith. I will say that many Christians, and I'll include myself, deal with shame about their feelings on a regular basis. We don't know how to process what we feel before God, I would say in part because we don't understand what proper human feelings feel like. Jesus had them. Or another one would be just understanding the feelings of our city. There's this line out of that song... um, that came out several years ago, longer than that, uh, New York Minute. Have you guys ever heard of that song, New York Minute? Don Henley. There's this great lyric in it where it says, I pulled my coat over my shoulders and took a walk down through the park. The leaves were falling around me, the groaning city in the gathering dark. Do you ever hear our city groan? It is. It groans. People are groaning. 
And so we have all these feelings around us. I'd like us to take the first couple of weeks and think a little bit about the feelings of God expressed through Jesus. And we're going to start with compassion. The compassion he feels and the effect it has upon people. Now, I want to say on the head start, I'm not picking compassion because that's such a, a friendly one. That actually is the one that is most recorded of Jesus in the Bible. Compassion. So, let's look at the compassion of God expressed in Jesus Christ. So, a couple of weeks ago, I got an email, book advertising, and it was advertising a book, Creating Compassionate Kids. And this was the tagline. If you had to choose one word to describe the world you want children to grow up in, what would it be? And then their thing was compassionate. And that's a pretty good choice, compassion. In fact, it's not so bad for adults. I I read an article out of Harvard Business School that said that research shows that compassion is a better managerial technique than toughness. Because compassion actually inspires loyalty and trust in employees, but also it protects creativity. Because if, you, you know, if you're working in an environment where you're with constant stress and anxiety, you can't be creative. You can't really give as you would. But it's important, isn't just elevated in the culture, you see it elevated in the scriptures in the life of Jesus Christ. The compassion of God is understood to be the way God pities and relieves the misery of his creatures. That God sees the misery of a sin-ridden world and all the stuff that we see, and he, he pities and seeks to relieve it. And you see this countless times throughout the testimony of the Bible. Oftentimes, in the Old Testament, the word you see compassion under is mercy. But you may be familiar with some of these. Psalm 103, as a father has compassion to his children, so the Lord has compassion on those that fear him. So there, right, God is saying, I want you, and you know, I know when you say father, that brings up a lot of complications. But I want some of us have met at some point a compassionate father. And the Lord is saying, did you see that? That's me. I have compassion. But even beyond those that fear me, it says Psalm 145, the Lord has mercy on all he has made. Compassion on the entire world. Whether it be from the sun, or whether it be you know, from the crops that emerge year after year, we could go on and on about the way God shows compassion on all he has made. So we shouldn't be surprised that the feelings of compassion are so seen in Jesus' ministry and how prevalent they are. And here's the thing. When we look at them closely, they end up answering some nagging questions you and I have about God's compassion. Let me mention three. First of all, the question we have, is the Lord willing to be compassionate to me? Is he willing, is he wanting to be compassionate to me? Now there's an account in the Gospels where a leper comes up to Jesus Christ and he implores Jesus. And this is what he says. He says, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. You notice he didn't ask if you are able. 
The question on his mind was, are you willing? And the text tells us that Jesus didn't just go, you're healed. The text tells us that Jesus moved with pity, stretched out his hand. Which means that he was moved from within. The compassion welled up and thence the healing followed. And of course you think about what was the thing a leper really missed out on? Touch. Jesus knew the need for compassion. And again you find this all through scripture. Uh, One of the verses I love, it's such a small verse, I've probably shared it with you once before. When Israel is groaning under brutal slavery, groaning for 400 years, I mean suffering in chattel slavery. And it says, their cry came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And God knew. He knew their need for compassion. What I'm saying is, within compassion, included in compassion, is knowledge of the need. And so as you and I say, God, I need to know if you're compassionate about the fact that I'm lonely, or I feel like I've been single just you know, year after year after year. I don't just feel it, I have been year after year after year after year. Or God, do you see the fact that the paychecks stop but the bills keep coming? Or do you see the fact that my child has this hurdle that other children don't have? And God knows and he has compassion on the need itself because he knows. Thirdly, a rather second nagging question, does he just grow tired sometimes of my neediness and need for compassion? Does he, does he just sort of roll his eyes? And the reason is that's our experience with one another. It is very hard to be present in suffering. People that, are, people that suffer will tell you, you know, I can probably count on one hand the people in my life that have been able to bear it with me. Now, for the short term, a lot of folks come out, right? But the problem is this. We tend to, especially, I think, in modern American society, our thought is, listen, get it fixed or shut up. Right? It's time to move on. And so we tend to think, is God like that? And one of the areas we can learn about this is uh, Jesus and his interaction with the crowds. Have you ever had a day or a week where it's just nonstop? The needs are nonstop. You know, maybe you're a teacher, maybe you're in the service industry, the line just keeps going and going and going. Maybe you're a nurse, maybe you're a manager, but the needs just don't stop. It's one of those days, it's one of those weeks. And so, you know, you've had it up to here. And by the time you get home, your thought is, if I have to help one more person, right? If I have to help one more person, I'm going to explode. And we let our roommate know that. And we let our spouse or our kids know, I'm at, I'm at the tipping point. That was... Basically, Jesus is every day. When you read the testimony of the scriptures, it says that he healed people from morning to evening. Like over and over. And so, you know, here the disciples are taking off 
And, uh, you know, they're finally going to get a little much-needed alone time. And they get into a boat, and they're starting to cross. And the crowd sees ahead where they're going. The crowd sees the vacation spot, right? And runs. And by the time, and I don't know if they could see them running there. Maybe they saw them running there just like, oh, no. Let, let a giant hole swallow them up. Or maybe they couldn't see anything, and they're off. You know, they turn around and go, we're here. And all of a sudden, it's all these people smiling, needy. You know, it would be like you get home from the longest day of your life and every needy person in your life is in your apartment. You get home from the longest day of your life, right? And your kids are not only there, but every kid in the neighborhood is there. And the child caregiver has to leave, right? So this is the life of Jesus. And we're told that Jesus got ashore, he saw the crowd, and he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, B.B. Uh, Warfield, this wonderful theologian, says, the image with that shepherd and sheep thing is this, of someone who has fallen, who is helpless, who is hopeless, who is vulnerable, who is worn out, who has been torn, and who is in danger. So where you and I see annoying crowds, and where you and I see draining people, Jesus looks out and he sees this. And he begins to teach them. He's not annoyed. And so you might ask yourself, Lord, okay, here I am, I overdid it again. I took on way too much and I'm wasted again. Or, Lord, here I am again with the same old weakness in my life or the same old fear. And you might wonder, does he get tired? Does he get annoyed? No, he gets compassionate. He's compassionate with you and your weakness and your bad decisions that you made. But this last one, I think, is the most challenging one. How, what about sin? What about the areas of my life where my pride, my selfishness, my foolishness have got me in a fix? I would think that his response there would just be to be mad. But this might be the most surprising thing. It's in the second passage. Jesus draws near the holy city, Jerusalem. And keep in mind, this is a city that had been rejecting him, but the worst is yet to come. He will enter Jerusalem and he will be the victim of mob justice. He will be falsely imprisoned. He will be tortured. He will be thrown out of the city and hung up on a cross. He will be spit upon and mocked. Now, you would think coming up to the city, Jesus would let loose a litany of judgment. I see what's coming, Jerusalem, and oh, man, you're going to get it. You're going to get it so bad. Except what we're told here is when he drew near to the city, he wept over it. And the word there in the Greek isn't just tear, it is he wailed, he bawled, uncontrollable grief. Maybe it's the grief you and I have seen when a beloved friend or a family member succumbs to addiction. We've seen as a loved one is led out of the courtroom into prison and you just see families melting and wailing. I wonder what the people around him were thinking. As he just lost it. Because he could look ahead. Why was he weeping? 
He was full of compassion for the judgment that was going to come and the peace that could have been theirs of the lost relationship. Someone has said that obstinate sin drew from Christ a deeper sigh than suffering. It's what you see played out in Scripture, that obstinate sin, hard-hearted sin, drew greater compassion in Jesus than suffering he saw. The New Testament tells us the Holy Spirit grieves when we sin. Why? Because he longs to alleviate the foolishness and he sees where we're headed. But what does that mean for you and me? It means, I think probably the hardest thing, and I've been trying to implement it in my own life, that when I sin and I screw up and my impulse is to want to run and move away from God or to perform to get myself back into it or do atonement or put myself on emotional probation, I've been starting to say, he has compassion on me even now. He's full of compassion right now. And that results in a different sort of experience. So let's go to the last point to close. Uh, A couple weeks ago, I was visiting Howard Griffith. And uh, some of you know Dr. Griffith because he's taught our um, community before faculty at RTS. He is a friend He is a mentor. He is a resource uh, to me. And he is, I think, as I've mentioned once before, in an all-out battle uh, with cancer. And so we were out there hanging out. And whenever I'm going to preach on something, I'm always saying, Howard, what should I read? And he said, you know, I think you ought to read this. There's an essay by this guy, B.B. Warfield, mentioned him already, old theologian in heaven now. And it's called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. The emotional life of our Lord. Now, I warn you, if you decide to read it, it's still pretty academic. You know, it's kind of, uh, it's emotional in that academic way. Kind of, uh, you know, uh, but it's still, you know, if you hang in there. And uh, Howard, we're talking about, I was saying how much it was encouragement to me. And Howard said, you know something? The first time I got done reading that, I felt so secure. I just did not expect that word. I felt so secure. When I learned about the feelings of Jesus, it made me not feel like I got to get out of here. I feel really secure in the presence of God. We oftentimes are at the opposite spectrum, aren't we? If someone asked us, how does God feel about you right now? You'd have a different answer depending on how you're doing with him. Instead of, well, I know exactly how he feels about me. Because I know how he feels about Christ. I know how he feels about his son who died for me in my obstinate sin. Who is my atonement when my feelings were enmity toward God. And the thing about it is we don't have to sort of jump up and down to get that response from Jesus. There's a little account in the Gospels where Jesus is coming to this city and he's going through the gate. And while he's going through the gate, there's a funeral procession going out. And it's a widow with her adult only son. And then we're told that Jesus looked at the scene 
and he was full of compassion. He just looked at it, and he just felt, you know, that's when you and I know that we've got a soft heart, right? Maybe it, it goes off and on, but maybe God is, it usually happens when he's brought you low. When you've experienced suffering, but you feel like I could just well up in a moment. We feel so attuned to the suffering. This was the heart of Jesus. And where pagan religions, you know, you can find this in 1 Kings. The story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, where they, they have to cut themselves and jump up and down and wave their hands and say, Be compassionate, notice me. The child of God can be secure and go, he's always noticing me. I don't have to do anything. He's, he's more compassionate on me than I am on myself. He sees it before I see it. Security is a result of knowing God's feeling of compassion. Second of all, intimacy. I've mentioned before my wonderful neighbor, Mr. Outlaw. He's a 90-year-old African-American man who's taught a block of yuppies how to love, how to be neighbors. And, uh, in fact, this week we have this wonderful high point where uh, we're going to have an official uh, street naming ceremony where our little block of street is going to be get another official name. It'll be 10th Street, but under it it'll say Outlaw's Way. And I think, that, you know, it's perfect language. You know, it's not only his street, but the way he has done things. But he and I will hang out and uh, we will talk and sometimes pray and he's you know he always says this line he goes we're talking about prayer and coming to god and he goes he said oh i know when i'm coming the lord looks and said oh here comes that outlaw boy again but i just keep coming i keep coming he pushes past right that feeling of cynicism that feeling that god is rolling his eyes Uh, you know gottman the great marriage guru said, when you look at a marriage, there's one thing, there's a couple things that'll sink it, but one that'll really sink it. Anybody know what that is? Contempt. Contempt. Instead of compassion. So I want to ask you about your marriage with God. If your marriage with God, your spiritual marriage with God is basically, you know, I think he has contempt and he rolls his eyes a lot when I have to come to him for what I need. That's not going to be good for your marriage. You start understanding he has compassion for me. He's going to do wonderful things for your relationship. Bottom line, there is never a time, my friends, when God doesn't want you to approach him. There is never a time. Banish it from your mind. Not a time when God doesn't want you to come to him. He's never mad in our coming back. He's full of compassion. Let's not stay away from him anymore. I mean, the devil would love for you to stay away from God because you won't be any threat. You won't be any help to this city. But if we can be counterintuitive by faith and move toward him, what could happen in our lives? But lastly, ministry. Jesus' entire life, as one person has said, was a mission of mercy. It was a mission of compassion. Now, there's a lot of people in D.C. on a mission. People come here because they got a mission. You know, maybe their mission is their career, or maybe their mission is basically to have fun because it's a fun city. Maybe they're devoted to a very noble cause and a compassionate decision. But the question is, how are you going about your mission? How does compassion filter into it? Now, I read some research that said this is the effect of compassion upon us. It reduces suffering. 
It opens up our heart and enlarges your understanding and perspective. It increases happiness. It makes you better socially connected, improves your health, increases possibilities for peace, and spreads to others. Now, this is just what the research in society is saying. What would the church begin to say? And this is, you know, I see this all the time. I just delight. I, this week, I could tell you five or six times that I heard stories of compassion from our community and the power that that gives to people. It is empowering compassion. It's because when you have sensed God's compassion for you, there's no way not to, you know, uh, government shutdown. We got people going on, you know, what day are we at now? You didn't have trouble knowing that, did you? Because you feel. And so one of the ways we're seeking to be compassionate, there was a prayer meeting just before the service, but also our diaconate saying, come to us, because the reason we give financially is for this reason. And I want to say to you, don't be shy about that. This is the health of our body. The health of our community. But let me end with this quote from Dr. Martin Luther King, appropriate, tomorrow being uh, the holiday that celebrates. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. And so our ministry here is more than we're trying to fling coins at the city and each other. True compassion begins to have a strategy, right? Compassion is this thing that becomes proactive and we begin to work in ways that are structural. And I think about our partner ministries and these people I've met, like District Church when they started DC 127 or Just Homes. It was this compassion that gave birth to strategy. Or Little Lights, it was this compassion that gave birth to strategy, And so as we come together in our ministry, that's what I'm talking about here, a ministry of compassion. It means that we do so in a smart way, not just sort of a haphazard feeling way. So I need to wrap up, but this is what I, I wonder this week, could we spend a little time praying and soaking in this idea of God's compassion? And I... I would love to hear the testimony of what you experienced. You can write me an email. You can grab me. You can tell someone else. It doesn't have to be me. But I believe God means us to be changed. Let's pray.